Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, my name is Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, we're going to close out our trip to Edinburgh, but I really, really feel like between these three episodes, we are truly just barely scraping the awesome haunts of Edinburgh. There are so many ghastly, ghostly places and so many wonderful stories associated with this old city, this old historic city. I just... I do think that I will probably end up doing another series down the traveling road because Edinburgh is definitely on my bucket list, you know, to go and see. But for now, and for our final episode in this series, let's discuss some interesting stories, some more interesting sights, and we'll close out with some haunted eateries that you can visit and perhaps have your only ghostly desserts before you leave. So on my first episode, I mentioned a few famous Scottish writers. However, one writer that I did not mention was Robert Louis Stevenson. In his career, Stevenson would write many novels, a couple of plays, and out of all of his literary works, two will still stand out. They're, they're still kind of very present in our, in our 2020. One is Treasure Island. You remember Long John Silver, don't you? The other is the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's right. Robinson's or Stevenson. (laughs) Just making up names as I go along here, guys. It's Stevenson who wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which we've kind of modern-day shortened it, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, Being a writer myself and looking out into the world and drawing upon past experiences or people you actually know or the people and things that we just observe, we can create characters. But sometimes even just hearing or reading about crazy situations can create inspiration. And such is the very situation, the very strange situation, with Stevenson and his novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So what am I talking about? Why, the strange but actual case of William Brody, of course. You see, William Brody, who lived in Edinburgh, well, or rather, he was Deacon Brody. Uh, he was a Scottish cabinet maker, the city's foremost locksmith. He was the deacon of a trades guild. And he was Edinburgh's city councillor by day. Just like Dr. Jekyll was an upstanding man uh, and a good person by day. But by night, William Brody's Mr. Hyde would come out. And by this, I mean Brody's darker, more McShady side came out. 
You see, Brody used his position as a city councilor to hobnob with the gentry, and they in turn trusted him to make their cabinets, to install and repair their home locks, as well as put in other security mechanisms in their homes. Well, Brody, who was basically given the keys to these people's homes to come and go, when he's doing the locks and or making the cabinets in the home, he would use wax to make copies of the keys of the locks that he's installing to basically be in his client slash friend's house later. So yes, this guy basically would break and enter and steal from his hobnobbing friends, clients, and at one point, Because he was so trusted and well-known, he even was given a job to do at a bank, and he did the same exact thing. So over the course of his thief-thugging career, the man actually steals 800 pounds from a local bank. And, you know, you got to wonder, why would a man such as an outstanding citizen commit these crimes? Well, obviously besides the thrill of it all, apparently Brody... He had a serious gambling problem, along with not one, but two side mistresses, mistresses, <laughs> mistresses, and five illegitimate children that he had to feed. Now, his after dark McShady thug life goes on for about 20 years as his criminal career took off about 1768 and it ends in 1788. And by this time, he's got. Gangs rolling around, he's in control of things, he's doing this, he's committing that, he's organizing this McShady activity. And it's in 1978 when he and one of his gangs failed to rob an exercise office in the Chessel Court on the Gannon Cape. Now, the exercise office um, apparently was a tax house or a tax a place where they collected taxes. And as ironies would have it, on the night his raid failed, one of the gang members had gone to the police and was like, hey, I'd like a king's pardon in exchange for some information on some of the robberies that's been going on. Now, initially, this snitch who didn't get his stitches uh, didn't exactly rat out Brody, but he does with the other gang members. So the police, taking this guy's information, rounds up Brody's accomplices, and they all go to jail. However, because the rat didn't rat Brody out, Brody's still kind of going, well, what's going on? He knows he knows his crew's been rounded up. And in fact, he he's even brazen enough to attempt to visit a few of them in prison. But when he gets refused, he knows... By then, the gig is up, and he's got to go. He's got to get out of Scotland. And so initially, Brody hightails it to London and then to the Netherlands, where he intends to catch, I think, a ship to the United States. However, he gets arrested in Amsterdam and is sent back to Edinburgh for his trial. Now, of course, this is big news. You know, city council member by day, thuggy by night, This is just huge. It's sensational. And all of this, of course, comes to a head at his trial, which begins on August 27, 1788. 
Initially, they didn't actually have a whole lot of hard evidence against Brody, but between the evidence of the copied keys, the disguise that was used for the failed raid at the exercise office, and the pistols that were also used for this failed attempted robbery in his warehouses and his home. Um, but at this time, not only does one, but two... Two accomplices actually turned King's evidence against him. And Brody kind of nails his own coffin because he writes these self-incriminating letters that he writes whilst on the run that they find. And between all of these, the witnesses, his gangster people turning against him, his letters in his own handwriting, the jury, of course, finds Brody and another accomplice guilty. So on October 1st, 1788, Brody and his other accomplice get hanged at Old Tollbooth Gallows on High Street for a crowd of about 40,000 people. They didn't have TV back then, so, you know, obviously this was a big thing. Either way, so... When you're visiting Edinburgh and you're walking around the Royal Mile High Street and you see some of the cafes, maybe even a few pubs, but statues of Brody named after Deacon Brody, now you know why. Because this was this guy was just like, I guess, the Scottish version of O.J. Simpson, big news, big celebrity, oh my gosh. Either way. If you make your way to the Lady Stair House or the Lady Stair Clothes and visit the Writers Museum, you can actually see a cabinet made by Brody that Stevenson actually owned. And I think that's super cool. I mean, to have something that you base your character on. Um, and while the museum, this writer museum, is free to view, uh, donations are, of course, accepted, so please donate. Now, in Edinburgh, there are these alleyways called closes. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the lady stair closed the alleyway. But they do have other names like winds or entries or courts. And Brody actually had his own clothes. Here's kind of where a lot of this ties in as well. It is said that his spirit began appearing in his clothes, his alleyway, after he was hung. And the rumors of his ghost hanging about his own clothes is actually persistent to this day. In fact, those who encounter his spirit, they say he is carrying a lantern and he is accompanied by a demonic fire-breathing horse as he strolls along. You will know that you have the right clothes because there, were, there is a statue of Mr. Brody out front on Lawnmaker Street in Old Town. So... You can go see his clothes, potentially see his ghosts, but you can definitely go to the Writer Museum and check out a museum dedicated to Robert Louis Stevenson. And Well, it's de dedicated to three Scottish authors. Uh, Stevenson has his own floor, apparently. But you can go and check these out. Now, obviously, this is just one of the many, many stories of Edinburgh. And Deacon Brody, a.k.a. Dr. Jekyll, is just one of the icons that you will actually see on the Royal Mile. Another icon that you may come across is the Witch's Well. The Witch's Well was erected in 1894 and was commissioned by Sir Patrick Geeds. 
This monument is to pay homage to the accused witches burnt at the stake in Edinburgh, Scotland, and it is the only one of its kind in the city. This well, which is also a drinking fountain, is located on the wall at the lower end of the Castle Espalande. I probably totally mispronounced that, but it's below Edinburgh Castle on the side wall of what today is the Tartan Weeding Mill. But more importantly, it is located close to where many witches were burned at the stake. Remember in our first episode, we talked about the witch ducking and burning witches at the once Norlock just outside Edinburgh Castle. So this is what we're referring to. And inscripted on this well, on the top left and the bottom right are Roman numerals for the years 1479 and 1722. Now, these years don't actually include the witch hunt and trials perpetrated by James VI, later known as England James I. But they should because this particular witch trials perpetrated by King James is actually one of the worst witch trials Scotland actually ever has. So let's take a moment and talk about that. On the 22nd of October, when King James, King of Scots, set sail for Normandy to collect his bride, Anne of Denmark, his fleet was met by some terrible weather. And instead of chopping up to bad weather, because it's almost, I don't know, winter in the north? This paranoid fucking douche, after being told by a Danish admiral that it was the work of a witch, decided, yes, yes, it was the work of a witch. Now, bear in mind, a witch hunt was already brewing in Denmark, and and James, being a little skittish prior to all this about dark arts and witches, he ate this admiral's bullshit sandwich in one swallow. So, James in turn, decides, well, I can't have witches, you know, cursing my fleet and trying to kill me and my my 14-year-old wife at that. Don't even get me started on that. But anyways, so James decides he is going to seek out those who try to use their dark magic against him, and he settles on this hapless teenage girl named Gillius Duncan. And why does James point his finger at her? Well, that's because thanks to Duncan's even bigger asshole of an employer, David Seaton, he knows that she has some knowledge of healing people and has this strange tendency to leave the house in the middle of the night and where she goes, he doesn't know. But he lumps these two together, and in 1590, she gets arrested for being a witch. And and James just latches on to this. He's like, yeah, you're right. This is her. She's, she's the problem. So... <sighs> Any guesses who then tortures this poor girl into confession? Oh, well, of course, fucking David and his son, who's also named fucking David. Anyways, this girl literally gets tortured for days. And then after having all of her hair shaven off of her body, they look at her neck and they're like, that's the mark of the devil. And that's like her final straw. She can't, she can't argue. She can't defend herself. You know, even though she's completely innocent. So she finally confesses. She's broken. And unfortunately, not only does she confess to being a witch, but she also confesses to meeting other witches and wizards to cause that terrible weather that nearly drowned King James's fleet. And sadly, on top of all of this, 
she names about 70 additional people as well. And for you Outlander fans, if you haven't already recognized uh, Duncan's name, you're certainly going to recognize the name Agnes Sampson. So because Gilius uh, confesses, she gets sent to the stake. And even though she tries her best to recant at the last minute, it's too late. She gets burned at the stake in 1591. And even though the records are not complete, they didn't keep very good records. In totality, it is estimated, starting with her, somewhere between two to 400 people actually follow her being burned at the stake. And people were accused for such asinine reasons, such as just having a mole or having red hair or this vengeful piece of shit asshole neighbor that you've been fighting with for years and he just turns his turns you in and says this guy or this woman is a witch basically is enough to get you burned and and king james is literally eating this up he is literally attending interrogations he is attending and participating in tortures of these innocent people. In fact, to drive my home about what a fucking dirtbag King James is, and I don't care that he wrote the Bible. You, you can't be a pious person doing these horrible things to people. But back on track, King James, one particular woman, a Barbara Napier, she's actually acquitted by the jury due to lack of evidence and James the fucker uses his power as the monarch to void her verdict from her innocent non-guilty verdict and orders her execution because he's just eating the shit up and then this fucking douche turns around and orders that the jury members themselves who found her innocent who acquitted her to be put on trial for acquitting a witch. So this guy is just, he's like Vlad, just impaling everyone, well, burning everybody. This, I, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing reading this stuff and trying not to get so upset. <laughs> Obviously, it's not helping. But either way, fucking James, man. I just can't even. Anywho, I had mentioned Agnes Simpson. And again, for those Outlander fans, Agnes, who was a prominent midwife and a natural killer, of course, was an easy target for these extreme zealots. Unfortunately for Agnes, fucking James took a special interest in her case and actually brings her to his castle at Holly Roadhouse Castle Palace. And despite withstanding torture for days and having all of her hair shaved from her body and being forced to stand naked, fixed against the wall of a painful, some sort of contraption known as the witch's bride. It's an oral contraption. She only confesses when her goalers are like, none of this is working. We just, we're going to have to up our game. And they deploy the use of what's called a garrot. A garrot is where they strap you by the neck to a chair or a pole and wrap a rope or a leather strap around your neck and tighten that rope. So basically, this garrot is a, is a mechanism to choke you out. And within an hour of being choked, after days of being tortured, Agnes finally confesses to 
the multitude of charges that are levied against her. Sadly, she gets burned at the stake, and it is said that her tormented ghost roams the hallways and the corridors of Hollywood Palace, and her tormented ghost looks tortured, is naked, and is bald. And in fact, not only have staff and visitors have seen her, but so too did a German chancellor in the 1990s when he was there visiting. Because in case you don't know this, today the Dolly Roadhouse Palace is actually still used by Queen Elizabeth II when she visits Scotland. And awesome news ever, guys, you too can visit this haunted palace. Located at the bottom of the Royal Mile, admissions is for adults, sixteen fifty. I think it's pounds or sterling. We're going to go with pounds, probably. Over 60 and students are 1490. Under 17 and disabled are 950. Children under five are free. And they do kind of offer a family packet of two adults, three kids under 17 for 4250. They are open from Monday to Sunday, 930 to 430. And awesomeness. You can have afternoon tea there as well. Of course, this has to be booked in advance, and it is served daily between 12 and 4 from April to October and 12 to 3 November to March, so the, the winter months, guys. But either way, you can enjoy a delicious range of homemade cakes, pastries, sandwiches, and you'll be served with your choice of loose leaf tea. I love it. I love tea. I love I love this. When I go to Edinburgh, this is what I'm doing, guys. So, afternoon tea is 21 pounds per person. And you can do champagne afternoon tea for 30 pounds a person. But if neither one of those things and you're more of a gin girl, gin cocktail Afternoon tea, also 30 pounds per person. So, parties of five or more, it is highly advisable to pre-book, but always pre-book. And if you have any questions or concerns, you can obviously contact them directly. But either way, check out their website and just, I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited. Um, As of today, uh, they're talking about a couple of promising COVID vaccines, and I'm excited. So, either way, uh, moving forward, but keeping in line with the witches and people, or rather people accused of being a witch, at the end of Prince Street, remember Prince Street was kind of where the gardens were, but up a hill is Colton Hill. Now, during James the Douche's reign, this was actually a place for those accused of being a witch, and hence, this is the place where witches were also put to death by, you know, burning them alive. But, ironically, it was also a spot where pagan rituals have been held for centuries. And one of the most current um, association and reflection and festival in honor of these is the Beltane Fire Festival. Now, this festival actually takes place every year on April 30th. So... If you're ever going to be in Edinburgh about this time, this festival actually sounds pretty cool. What it is, it's a modern-day twist of an old Celtic tradition. 
with the use of blazing pyrotechnics, elaborate costumes, and a performance of a rather immersive play, this festival acknowledges the changing of the seasons from winter to spring. For this one special night, again, April 30th, via the immersive performance, hundreds of otherworldly creatures will descend on Colton Hill to start the transition. Then, when the drums start to thunder, the May Queen awakens and leads the Green Man, and I think the Green Man is a representation of winter, and their followers on this transformative journey through the night. Then when the green man sheds his wintry guise, he can then take his rightful place by the May Queen and rule alongside her through the warmer months. Again, this is all located at Colton Hill on April 30th, and you, as a visitor, can attend this festival. Booking online in advance, of course, is highly advisable. And since this is a celebration... Uh, heads up, guys, there, there'll be nudie people, nudie characters, so consider yourself warned if A, you go, and B, you have young children with you. Either way, all children under 16 must be accompanied by an adult and have their own separate ticket. Uh, children under 12 can go for free. So if you're interested, I would be interested just to see how what they do, I mean, it sounds kind of fabulous. And the pictures from their website look amazing. Booking, again, online uh, in advance. It's 11 pounds or sterling, but that's in advance. The day of the festival, it's 15. And, of course, a lot of these include book, booking fees. And they do offer a limited number of low-income tickets that are also available as well. Now, I personally think this is pretty righteous, and they have a festival here where they once burned witches, and I can see perhaps such festivals returning to the site of pagan origins as potentially healing this land from the atrocity and the, his the horrible history that was once committed there. So I think this is kind of a win-win, basically. And... If you are in Edinburgh any other time, Colton Hill apparently is also just a popular spot for watching the sunset over or sunrise over this magnificent city. So, okay, we have talked a lot about the people of Edinburgh, the history of Edinburgh. Let's talk about my second favorite subject, food. Dare I say it? You like food. I eat food. We all food for food. And because Edinburgh has some awesome ghostly history, you can eat where the ghosts like to play. We'll start off with the Banshee Labyrinth. Partially located within some of the city's many underground vaults, the Banshee Labyrinth describes itself as Scotland's most haunted pub. Some years ago, during a reconstruction of the pub, a group of workers were working in the closed pub when they heard the sounds of sobbing. They poked around and found what appeared to be a young woman with her head in her hands, crying. When they approached this woman, this mysterious female lifted up her face and gazed upon the workmen with eyeless sockets and shrieked a blood-curling scream. Naturally, the men all went scurrying from the pub. A few hours later, 
One of them received a call about the death of a family member. A banshee, in case you don't know, is a messenger of death. Now, as I said before, sections of this particular pub were once part of the infamous underground vaults of Edinburgh. And this McShady history adds to the strange aura of this place. And since many people have met grisly ends in those dank, depraved rooms, it comes to no surprise that sometimes they do tend to have some interesting activity. But more importantly, the main thing that tends to happen is that unattended pints tend to be launched onto the floor or thrown against the wall. Located at 29-35 Midri, probably mispronouncing that, street in Edinburgh. Another haunted pub is the White Hart Inn. Now, parts of this pub, meaning its cellar, actually dates back to 1560, so we're talking 500 years old. The White Hart Inn is actually considered to be Edinburgh's oldest pub. Stories of shadowy forms, unexplained bangings, slamming doors are really just the beginning. Both owners and staff alike have reported the shadowy figures in the doorway leading down to the cellar, the 500-year-old cellar, and... They've seen a detached pair of legs followed by a full figure in the center of the cellar near the fridges. So a lot of activities in the cellar. And I think there was even an instance where one of the bartenders actually got their hair pulled while changing a barrel whilst in the cellar. And <laughs> and we're talking, you know, cold spots, door slamming behind them and they do actually believe there is a mischievous spirit that likes to play games with the staff and the gas cylinders of the beer taps however loud repetitive banging is also heard from inside the cold room as well as intermittent banging from other areas in the cellar and people have often heard footsteps above the bar when it's closed and tourists have also reported having very interesting experiences in 2013 an australian couple apparently captured a picture of what they believe is the specters of the old haunts of the inn an american tourist this time uh, another time came running out of the restroom saying that something grabbed him by the shoulder while he was using the bathroom and in fact so much is going on in this particular pub that ghost hunters are actually coming and spending the night. In fact, one particular Scottish ghost adventurer came over to spend the night at the bar. During his overnight stay, he caught recordings of words that said, help me, and the name Connor being uttered by a mysterious source, along with uh, EVPs of a voice saying, help me, help me, help me, and something, some type of muttering about a baby. There's even a popular myth that the dodgy duo Burke and Hare supposedly enticed a few of their fellow drinkers away from this particular pub to kill them in their nearby lodgings before, you know, selling their co corpse to the doctor. Anyways, if you are looking for a ghostly good time with a hearty Scottish pint, the White Heart Inn sounds like a very good choice. And you can find it at 35 Grass Market. Now, another interesting haunted pub is the Last Drop Tavern. Per this pub's website, they are allegedly haunted by a little girl in medieval clothing. It is believed that she lived in the tenants that existed in the location before 
it was transformed into the pub. Over the years, she's been seen by staff and customers alike in the cellar and also the bar area. And she reportedly likes to whisper their names, especially when they're alone in the building. In addition to her ghostly presence is the location of the last drop. Because if you're like, hmm, that's a pretty distinctive name even for a pub, you are right. You see, the Last Drop Tavern is all about location, location, location. Allegedly, during the heyday of gallows, the grass market gallows were once situated from the current modern-day pub. So they think that the spirits that were, you know, met their demise, their end at the gallows, have made its way over to the this particular tavern. So... Uh, up to you. Obviously, it's a cool name. It is in proximity of a place where terrible things happen. And you, too, can visit yourself and hopefully have a ghostly experience happen. Located at 74-78 Grass Market, Edinburgh. If you get lucky, you might get a little glance of this girl while nipping on a pint or two. Now, if you've never been to Scotland, like me, and you've never walked into a pub, ordering can be a bit intimidating. And while I, like I said, I've never been to Scotland, I have been to England and Ireland. During my visits, I, I'm not really much of a drinker. I have actually, though, enjoyed some English cider, such as Strongbow, and Irish ciders, such as Balmers. But if you're more of a stout person, you can always do, you know, the Guinness. Now, the last place I'd like to mention is The Witchery. It's both a hotel and a restaurant. It is located by Edinburgh Castle, and it is believed to be because of its close proximity to the castle that these premises are haunted by the spirits of the many unfortunate souls of the late 16 and early 17th centuries. Again, location, location, location. Remember, fucking James is said to have executed more people than any other monarch. Anyways. As a hotel, it has eight bedroom suites that is furnished in a gothic style with oak paneling, ancient tapestries, and antique features. Each room comes with a four-poster bed and velvet sheets. And it roughly costs three to four hundred pounds a night. But if you look at these pictures, these rooms are absolutely gorgeous and for their outstanding and beautiful restaurants, again, it's a little pricey, but it seems to me that they do their very best to wow their guests. And per my bestie, TripAdvisor, they are currently receiving four out of five stars. And again, if you look at the pictures, you can see why. This place is simply gorgeous. And the food pictures are just mouthwatering. Now, I've spoken a lot about the seriousness and injustice perpetrated on the hapless, the unfortunate, those who, you know, who fall into the historic archives and we may never really know uh, their true story. So I'd like to close out tonight. I'd like to close Edinburgh out with the story of injustice, perhaps turn justice. For the locals, this story should be one of the most well-known stories of the grass market area of Edinburgh. But for us foreigners, it is the story of Maggie Dixon. Born in Musselburgh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, in or about 1702, 
She was married to a fisherman, but he quickly left the scene either after being pressed, ganged into the Royal Navy, or he went on to work on the fishing fleet in Newcastle. Either way, by 1723, when she's about roughly 21 years old, Maggie finds work at an inn in Kelso. And she had a relationship with the innkeeper's son and became pregnant. Hiding the pregnancy when the baby was born, it was born prematurely. To this day, it is not clear whether the baby was born, stillborn, or if it died shortly after, or we don't even know how it died. But it doesn't matter. Because Maggie abandoned the body on the banks of the River Tweed where it was found. Maggie was then arrested and subsequently tried for the murder of the baby. And despite the questionable evidence against her, she is found guilty and sentenced to hang. On September 2nd, 1724, Maggie was duly hanged at a public execution in Grass Market, probably the same gallows near the Last Drop Tavern. Following her execution, her friends and family fought with the medical students for possession of her body. Remember, in the previous episode, the medical students were allowed to get the bodies of the executed. The family, you know, caused a riot, and they the medical students just gave up the body, gave up Maggie's body. And Maggie was placed in a coffin to be transported to her hometown of Musselboro for her burial. While en route, her family and friends stopped for some refreshments at a roadside pub. At this time, they noticed that the lid of the coffin was seen to be moving. And after prying it open, they find Maggie alive. In fact, she was recovered quite well and she was well enough to walk the rest of the way to Musselboro the next day. The best news, because the punishment had been executed, and because Maggie had been properly hung for the crime that she was accused of, she was beyond any further prosecution, and she goes on to live another 40 years. And it is believed that she died in 1765. So when you're checking out Edinburgh and you're checking out all these sites, if you see the Maggie Dixon pub, which actually overlooks the scene of her execution in the grass market, you now know who Maggie Dixon is. Okay, so that's all I have for Edinburgh tonight. Uh, Reaching in for my buckets for the emails for our murder in the uh, Rug Morgue. My notes say mortgage. (laughs) Giveaway. Uh, Hold on. Let's see. Uh, The winner. Hold on. Okay, let me. Oh, yeah, oh. Edgar Allan Poe wrote "Murder, uh, Murder and the Rue Mark" in eighteen forty-one. Yes, my first draw. Uh, Erica, Eric. Oh, oh, I was gonna say her last name. Erica of Afaretta, Afaretta, Georgia. Congratulations, you won. I'll be dropping the game off. It's a small package, uh, in the uh, in the mail. For you um but thank you for playing thank you everyone for playing it was actually kind of fun uh so maybe i'll do another one 
in the future. I don't know. Maybe we should have waited for Christmas, but oh well. It is what it is now. But congratulations, Erica. Clapping. Guess not. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so that's all I have for tonight. Though, to be fair, I do, again, don't think I'm completely done with Edinburgh. And I cannot stress this enough. This place is haunted, haunted, haunted. But we do have to move forward and check out some other haunted places around the world. Which brings me to, however, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have a specific tourist attraction in mind, send me an email at wherethedarkcornersare at gmail.com. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. (laughs) 